You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. I want to start this morning doing something that is very out of the norm for me. If you have spent any amount of time with me before personally, you know that this is going to be a little bit out of my comfort zone. So I want to spend the first couple of minutes this morning talking to you about sports. Okay? You're just going to have to bear with me for a second, all right? I understand that this is wild card weekend. There's a lot of stuff going on, but there really is only one wild card game worth watching, and that's taking place at 4.30 this afternoon between the Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys, okay? Many of you may not know this, but I am originally from Texas, and so even though I am not necessarily tied to any sport or any team, my loyalty goes with the Dallas Cowboys and the Texas Rangers because that's the area of Texas that I am from. So I am, I'm invested in this. I am going to watch this game and I'm going to do my best to follow along with it. <laughs> now, realistically, I have to be a little bit honest because when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, in that age range, I was a huge sports fan. I have no idea what happened, okay? In, in the years that have transpired past, since that time, I just don't know. I don't pay attention to teams. I don't follow stats. I don't know players. I don't know anything about this. But in the early 90s, I guess in 1993, Remember the movie Rudy with Sean Astin? That movie came out and it totally inspired me, man. As soon as that was released, I began watching Notre Dame every single week. And that was when Lou Holtz was still uh, the, the coach of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. And so I would just watch them every single week. And then I got into the Cowboys and then I got into baseball. And for some reason, I just haven't paid attention to it throughout the years. But I want to um, bring to mind a particular instance on January 30th, 1994, actually right here at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, the Dallas Cowboys beat the Buffalo Bills 30-13 to to win their second consecutive Super Bowl against the Bills. Do you remember this? This would be the fourth consecutive loss for the Bills as they, as they made it to the Super Bowl each year from 1991 to 1994. Their running back, Thurman Thomas, with his head bowed and with his hands covering his face, sat on the Buffalo bench following his team's fourth straight Super Bowl loss. Thomas's two fumbles helped seal the fate of a team that has not been back to the Super Bowl since. Although, they do have a shot, right? They have a shot this year. They're in one of those wild card games. It's gonna be on on Monday. Anybody interested in that one, just by curiosity? Oh, a few people, all right. Okay, but interestingly, you remember 
who the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys was during this time, right? Who? Troy Aikman, and who was the running back? Emmett Smith, that's right, okay? And after Emmett Smith and the Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl, Emmett Smith was pretty much instantly named MVP of Super Bowl 28, and he's walking around the field carrying his goddaughter, just taking all of this in, and he notices Thurman Thomas on the bench of the Buffalo Bills, and he walks right over to him, and he hands... He, he, he holds his hand out to shake Thurman Thomas's hand and he introduces him to his goddaughter and he says, hey, I want you to meet Thurman Thomas. This is the greatest running back in the NFL. Now for Emmett Smith to say something like that to a running back that has lost four consecutive appearances in the Super Bowl was a genuine display of humility that really carried with it a healthy dose of perspective. And so that's what kind of I want to steer us towards as we continue on in the book of Philippians today. We're gonna be in chapter two, so you can go ahead and click your way over to chapter two. And we're gonna look at one of the key passage, the key passages in the New Testament that speaks of Jesus's humiliation that ultimately goes to his exaltation. So as we began reading Paul's letter, as we began reading Paul's letter to the church at Philippi last Sunday, we observed just by way of a recap that Christ-centered living empowers us to stand firm, faithful, and fearless when facing the things that we feel ill-equipped to handle. No matter what happens, we're to conduct ourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ right now because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, as Paul will say in verse 3, chapter 20. But today we're going to focus on the fact that Christ-centered living produces self-giving humility. And what do I mean by that phrase, self-giving humility? Listen to this quote by Thomas Langford. And I had to take this one slow, so we're really going to take this slow, working our way through it. We might even read it twice, but I really want you to understand this because this, this is the essential thrust of the message this morning with everything that I'm trying to communicate as far as what self-giving humility actually is. Langford says, in Jesus, we find embodied the self-giving of God to persons and the self-giving of a person to other persons. Jesus is the Lord who is servant, and Jesus is the servant who is Lord. As the Lord who is servant, Jesus identifies with human life so as to establish a redemptive relationship. As servant, who is Lord, Jesus calls us to acknowledge his lordship through our servanthood. The grace of God in Jesus calls us to a graciousness which is a self-abandonment to the love of God and to the love of the neighbor. And so let's pick up in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. 
It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful in this moment to sit under the instruction of your word. We're coming into this place today from a host of varying circumstances. Some of us are experiencing intense amounts of grief. Some of us are focused on things that we have no control over. Some of us are finding it difficult uh, to manage the various things that we're responsible for. Whatever the case is today, would you sit with us in this moment And would you help us to realize as we make our way through this passage that there is nothing that we have encountered that you are unfamiliar with because of the humiliation that Christ endured upon the cross, which ultimately led to his exaltation. And as we walk out of this place today, help us to walk out in the victory that Christ has defeated both sin and death. And he invites us into a loving and vibrant relationship with himself that changes everything about our lives. And so work in these moments that we share together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this section that Paul has employed in chapter two could very well be an ancient hymn, a song that people sang. Yet it is a perfect description of everything that Christ endured from his humiliation leading into his exaltation. And it pretty much encapsulates the entire gospel message. And so right there in verse 5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Meaning that we're to pursue both the attitude and actions of Jesus. In other words, is it my intention as a person to get or to give? Because what Christ is demonstrating through this ancient hymn is that we are to give ourselves constantly in self-humility. But 
we are to have the same mindset or the same mind to adopt the thinking of Christ. And so can I ask us, like, what is it that typically goes through your mind on a daily basis with wherever you are and whatever you're doing? You have so many things going on in your mind that it is difficult to keep track of them. But sometimes these intrusive thoughts can often blindside us, right? We have no idea where they came from, and we're almost like disgusted with ourselves that we could actually think of something that horrific. And don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Because we are sinful people. Those of us that are in Christ, yes, we have been redeemed, but there is still a sinful nature that we're attached to. There are still sinful patterns that we have yet to deal with and surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And we will continue to deal with sin to a a certain degree until he comes again and makes all things new. But you remember in Romans 12, too, when Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, which I have to submit to you is intensely difficult in this particular time. Because when Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, at least us in the West, we, we have everything available to us at our fingertips for our, for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. But Paul is communicating to be transformed by the consistent renewal of our mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And he moves on, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So when it says Christ being in the very nature of God, we have to understand that there has never been a time in eternity where Jesus was not. Biblical Christianity says that Jesus is God. He is eternal. He has no point of origin. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has eternally existed with the Father from eternity past all the way as long as it endures. Yet, what does it say in verse 7? He made himself nothing. Some of your translations will say, or he emptied himself. This is what scholars refers to, uh, refer to as the kenosis passage. Now, hang on with me just for a minute because things are about to get a little bit nerdy, all right? We don't typically use a Greek word like kenao or kenosis, but this is essentially communicating that the incarnation in which the eternally divine Son of God in an act of humility fully assumes human nature without losing any of his divine nature. In other words, the Son of God adds becoming a human to his person without surrendering any of his deity. And interestingly enough, he will remain fully God and fully man forever. Jesus did, however, give up his rights. 
It says in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see all over the New Testament how Jesus brings himself to serve. In John 13, three through five, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus humbles himself by becoming a servant on our behalf with no rights whatsoever. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Why is Jesus doing this? Because he's the only one that can. Adam and Eve chose to live out the freedom that God had given them in disobedience. Therefore, it's impossible for us to obtain perfect obedience. We know this. Romans 3, 10 through 18. Every single person in this room fits this description. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Christ's death took place on a Roman instrument of torture. Not even Romans could be crucified. A horrific death like this was reserved for slaves and rebels. So Jesus not only embraces the limitation of taking on flesh, but he continues to descend to the status of a slave, ultimately suffering a revolting death on the cross. So this image on the screen is taken from the Israel Museum in Jerusalem of a crucified man's heel bone with the nail still driven through it. It's like we can't even imagine a more humiliating or horrific way to die than crucifixion. But it's interesting because Jesus has his concerns, right? Do you remember Gethsemane? He's in terrible anguish knowing what is about to happen and he prays to his father. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, he says, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Have you experienced a moment like this in your life? Where you've been doubled over in anguish, praying and pleading for God to act on your behalf with whatever situation or circumstance you're praying for specifically, keep in mind right here that Jesus is acquainted with that. He is acquainted with every single one of our griefs. 
And this is everything that this ancient hymn is descriptive of. Jesus is about to go to the cross not only to face the intense brutality of crucifixion, but for the first and only time in all of eternity, the fellowship of the Father and Son will be broken when he takes on the sins of the entire world. And when I think that God, his Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. This makes me think of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Joni Erickson Tata. A few of of you might be familiar with her. She's the founder of Joni and Friends, which is an organization that brings practical help and gospel hope to people with disabilities around the world. She's an author, she's a radio host, and she's a phenomenal artist. So in 1967, at the age of 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay after misjudging the shallowness of the water. And the dive crushed her fourth cervical vertebrae, which is the neck region of the spinal column, and left her without the use of her hands and legs. She still maintains good shoulder muscles and and decent biceps, but um, anything below her neck, she can no longer feel. Today, she's 74 years old. She'd placed her faith in Christ only a couple of years before her accident, and had only what she referred to as a vending machine understanding of Jesus. He was there to simply dispense the things necessary to make her life comfortable. And I had to grapple with that myself because she had such an interesting way of putting it. Like a vending machine view of Jesus. Is that something I've adopted in my understanding of Jesus throughout the years, that he only exists to dispense the things that I need from him in order to make my life comfortable. So as a result of this accident and her being new to the faith, bitterness toward God rooted itself within her as each day passed And she could feel the distance between her and God widening. Until one night, she was in her hospital bed. And this was after hours, so all of the nurses had gone off shift. And she was in her bed alone. And she could barely stand the anguish the inner turmoil of everything that she had just endured and the fact that she no longer has use over 90% of her body. 
And all of a sudden, she heard a sound and she saw a shadow, but she couldn't see a person, even though she was trying to move her head around the room as fast as she could. And she saw a shadow, but she didn't see a person. So she's beginning to get really freaked out. And then next to her hospital bed, she begins to hear the rail loosen. And one of her friends from high school named Jackie, a field hockey buddy, got in the bed next to her and placed her head on her pillow and grabbed Joni's hand and they interlocked fingers. Joni couldn't feel it, so she raised her hand so that she could see what she was doing. And Jackie sang these words to her. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. And it was at that moment that Joni recalls vividly where she began to trust that God's plan and purpose and his sovereignty was exactly where it needed to be the moment that she dove into the Chesapeake Bay. And it would lead her to say, the suffering I've endured has taught me that my attitude should be the same as that of my Savior's. He who made himself nothing humbled himself. Let's not forget that the gospel is a person who is acquainted with our grief, who offers salvation to everyone willing to turn away from their habitual patterns of sin and confess him as Lord. Listen to this quote by D.A. Carson. I love it. The promise of deliverance The assurance that we are accepted by Almighty God is tied not to the intensity of our faith or to the consistency of our faith or to the purity of our faith, but to the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is the crucified yet resurrected Lord of all, Jesus Christ. He is the one that we place all of our hope in this morning. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're enduring, if your marriage is failing, if you can't deal with a diagnosis, if you are suffering from internal loneliness and you don't know what to do about it, you don't feel as though you can reach out to anyone about it, if you're having problems with a wayward child, if you're suffering through estranged relationships, like I mentioned last week, Jesus is the one that is acquainted with our grief. But we know that he endured the cross and he despised its shame. Do we not? So now we transition from a place of humiliation to a place of exaltation, to a place of hope, to a place of resurrection. Because in beginning in verse 9, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. This is saying that God has given Christ equal status with himself for the first time as the God-man, God in flesh, the one who was crucified yet rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is the Lord. This is the Greek word kurios. It's a title for God and for Christ, meaning God, the one who commands us. Does God command your life this morning? Does God command my life this morning? Have I humbly submitted to his lordship every part of who I am? These are questions that I had to grapple with this week on a very personal level. This is not an easy message for me personally to preach. Because we have to hold these things up against ourselves before we dare present anything to Christ's church. It's not up for discussion by the way, as it says in verse 10, that every knee, excuse me, verse 11, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not up for discussion who will bow the knee and confess Jesus is Lord. Scripture is clear on this. When Christ comes again, those who have followed him in this life will joyfully bow and call him Lord because they have been waiting for his return. They've been waiting for him to right every wrong and restore all things and will therefore be resurrected like he was and inherit an eternity of being in his presence. This is for those that follow Christ but for those who cast the good news of the gospel to the side, choosing instead to be their own gods in this life, will still bow and confess Jesus as Lord. That confession, however, will be met with condemnation where there's an inheritance of eternal torment separated from the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. So what does this mean for us? What does Christ's humiliation and exaltation mean for us at Lost Mountain Baptist Church at the start of 2024? Paul uses the ancient hymn to give practical guidelines to the church at Philippi in order to be unified in Christ. But these are the ways that Christ-centered living produce self-giving humility within us. Go back up to verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This communicates to us that self-giving humility is evident when I consider others better than myself. This is completely countercultural. We are an individualized culture that wants prominence, prestige, possessions. We don't have 
the time to value others as more important than ourselves while we try to do the things that we're responsible for, while we try to advance in our careers, while we try to continue to invest in whatever retirement fund we're investing in, whatever the case may be. But yet here it is, self-giving humility is considering others better than ourselves. So as we become responsible for the word that's preached today, how are we structuring our time in such a way in order to serve others? And it has to start right here. We have to be able to serve one another and value one another above ourselves and above our own agendas. This is the way it works. This is the way that Christ's death and resurrection are magnified within us as his followers. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This says that self-giving humility is evident when I live out my commitment to Christ in every area of my life. I'm living out my commitment to Christ in every area of my life. God works in us to will and to act, as it says in verse 13, according to his good purpose, not my good purpose. And finally, in verses 14 through 16, do everything without grumbling or arguing. This is difficult in the church, is it not? We've got opinions about everything and we do not mind sharing them. We're laughing because it's the truth. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on that day of Christ that I did not labor in vain. So self-giving humility finally is evident when I seek to be blameless. When I am pursuing blamelessness in my life as I walk in a manner worthy of the calling that I've received. I don't know how you started off this year, but I certainly started off knowing that there are things about my commitment to Christ, my walking blameless before him, my considering others better than myself that have to change. They just have to. Because I want to serve Jesus. It is the cry of my heart and it is the cry of this church that we can legitimately serve him. There's so many things 
that demand our attention on a daily basis. There's so many ways that we can be sidetracked. But Christ-centered living produces self-giving humility. And so Jesus said to me specifically, that sounded a little weird. He didn't say anything audibly to me. Don't get all weird. Through the preparation of this message this week, he wants me to give myself away. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like. And I'll be honest with you, that's scary. It is. Sometimes we just don't know what God might be prompting us to do. But whatever it is, I I want to, to lay myself down in such a way in humble submission and service to him saying, this is not mine anyway. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I pray that Christ-centered living, producing self-giving humility, would manifest itself in this place and we would truly be about the business of considering others better than ourselves of living out our commitment to Christ in every area of our lives and seeking to be blameless. Would you pray with me? Our offering ushers are going to prepare to receive the offering this morning. One of the ways we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ is through the recognition that what we have is not our own. And that's inclusive of our financial resources. So you respond in obedience as we prepare to receive our offering and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Father, you've been merciful to us. You've demonstrated through this passage what your son had to endure so that he could ultimately be exalted. And you're calling us to emulate that. And so I pray that we would heed the words of Scripture today and take this very seriously. ask, Father, that you would speak to us. That you would grant us understanding of what it is that you're calling us to do individually and what it is that you're calling us to do as a church as we move forward to seek to meet needs within our community. And to demonstrate that Lost Mountain truly is a place that desires to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus.
as we respond today. I pray that we wouldn't continue to stuff down what needs to be brought to the light, what needs to be told to a friend so that they can pray for us, what needs to be shared. Would you do your work? And would you change us and further shape us into the image of your beloved son? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.